there's still the ick factor. And, you know, that's an ick constant that we can't really influence much. But, yeah. <laughs> this is Relatively Prime. Infectious disease in the mathematical domain. I am Samuel Hansen. We are coming up on flu and cold season here in North America. And even if all of you have got your flu vaccine, and if you haven't, why are you listening to this? You should really be taking care of that instead. There are still going to be plenty of infections going around this winter, and all of us are bound to either get one ourselves or know someone who has one. Once this inevitably happens, the question then becomes just how should I deal with it? How should I go about my life sick or try to avoid becoming so? Which is why, for all of you, I went looking for someone who might be able to help us answer that question. Okay, uh, so we're going to start off uh, first name, last name, you know, basic introduction. You know, you know what I'm talking Yeah, um, I'm Benjamin Morin. I'm a postdoc at uh, Arizona State University and a little bit now and then at Princeton. Since we spoke, Benjamin is no longer a postdoc, having become an assistant professor of mathematics and statistics at Vassar College. But while a postdoc, Benjamin spent a lot of time thinking about groups of people in various states of health. I'm trying to think about how they change over time. And that's going to have a lot to do with the nature of the specific disease itself, but also what their opinions are about their risk and how they choose to react to that epidemic. Now, if you ask me, there's one way, one very, very clear way to react to the risk of any sort of epidemic. The obvious way to get rid of a disease from a population is to have everybody stay home for the next three weeks. Don't talk to anyone. Just stay in your own room. You know, have a mini fridge in there so you can feed yourself and whatnot. And while this definitely would lower the risk of contracting an infectious disease, essentially to zero, which is why I'm fully in favor of it, it turns out that not everyone just lives on the internet and some humans actually do like interacting with one another. So because of these things, we value this human-to-human interaction. And so there's that that trade-off there. We, we need to be a social being, but at the same time, that exposes us to risk of disease. Benjamin and his collaborators looked at these behaviors individuals take in relation to infectious diseases and figured out which ones really drive the spread of a disease, or to nail down the vocab, the disease incidence. Disease incidence is really driven by these three key factors. The amount of activity everyone's engaged in, the probability of risky behavior, so how likely am I to encounter a person who's sick? And then there's also, at the end of the day, there's the probability that if I do encounter somebody who's sick, what's the chances I get sick? Let's think about this idea of disease incidence mathematically. It's a rate which is impacted by three variables where the rate goes down when the variables are smaller. So if we want to decrease the incidence of a disease or mitigate it, as people in the know would say, one way would be through becoming hermits as this would lower the first variable, total amount of activity, or by avoiding, say, any elementary school teachers who we all know are incubators of those terrible diseases found under the fingernails of all small children, and therefore lowering the amount of risky behavior we are engaging in, or through washing our hands and only sneezing into our elbows in order to lower the risk of people catching a disease. Clearly, these variables are not all created equal in all cases. 
If we look at the first two, it turns out that they're both just as effective at mitigating the risk of catching a disease if the disease carrier is showing symptoms like coughing and sniffling constantly. But if it's possible for someone to be an asymptomatic carrier of the disease, like is often the case with, say, influenza, then things are a bit different. With those, you can choose to be a hermit and not engage in any activity, and that obviously insulates you completely from getting infected. You can't be choosy enough and have a zero chance of encountering somebody who's infectious. Frankly, it's there. The effectiveness of their chosen mitigation strategy is not the only thing an individual needs to take into account, though, when they're deciding how to act with regards to an infectious disease, at least not according to the models Benjamin was working with. After all, what good is avoiding being sick if you run out of money? So for you, the cost of taking days off could be fairly large, especially if you live in a a particularly poor country where you're an uneducated laborer and you're easily replaceable as far as your boss is concerned. You take a day off, you're fired. So then if it's the difference between doing that or I'm going to try to avoid crowded areas, of course, with whom you mix is the preferred strategy. Now, if you happen to live in a country that's affluent or you're highly skilled and like a CEO of a company, for instance, they're not going to fire you for taking a couple days off because you're sick. And so for you, that course of mitigation is dirt cheap. And that's more likely to be what you'd engage in. Well, that's depressing. And having worked in the service industry, all too true. But those are only the mitigation costs for an individual. And as we talked about earlier, humans are social creatures, so it would be rather short-sighted to focus exclusively on individuals, which is why Benjamin and his collaborators also looked at things from a wider perspective. From an individual perspective, what you're primarily concerned with is your cost of mitigation and the cost of disease on you. And that tends to have a particular duration that you value it over. And it's really you-centric in a lot of our models. It doesn't have to be, but it is. And from a social perspective, what they're really doing is they're sort of calculating up all those individuals. So what's the total cost and the total duration and how long that's carried out? And those things don't necessarily have to agree with one another. And that's when interesting dissonance occurs. So say we're looking at things from this larger societal perspective, and there's an epidemic going around and individuals are acting how you would expect and doing their best to avoid getting sick. What effect do these individual mitigations have on the population as a whole? What it does first and foremost is it reduces the number of people who get ill. As a person who wholly endorsed going full hermit earlier to avoid getting sick, I must say that fewer people ill sounds like a winner to me so far, but I'm sure it can't all be good. So what else do these mitigations mean? It also reduces the peak number of people who are sick at any one given time. That actually still sounds pretty good. I mean, wouldn't that mean that when I finally run out of groceries due to my very long anti-sick hermitage, there's not going to be hordes of zombie people walking around trying to get me sick? Plus, if you're in a place with a limited number of hospital beds, then a lower peak amount of people sick would mean, yeah, yeah, it would mean that there's a lower probability that the hospitals would all fill up. I mean, this whole everyone mitigating and trying to avoid getting sick is just looking better and better to me. But what it can do is stretch out the duration of the epidemic. So if you think of it this way, 
if the epidemic process is occurring and no one's kind of reacting to it, we're going to run out of healthy people to get sick. Or just the probability of you encountering somebody who hasn't already gotten sick is so small, it's just not going to happen, the disease dies out. But if we keep that susceptible population relatively large, we're just sort of leaking this infection out and dragging it over the course of several months, which could have taken a couple of weeks. For you or I, that might not be a big deal, especially if the cost of mitigation is cheap relative to the cost of illness. But from a policy perspective where they're adding up everyone's mitigation over the entire period of time, that could be a really costly endeavor. And so this could be a situation where citizens keep on and carry on and just do your thing might be preferred from a social perspective rather than in the private one. There it is. I knew that if I just waited long enough, the other shoe would eventually come tumbling down. Since everyone mitigating for every epidemic is apparently not always the best idea, I asked Benjamin what his models showed would be the best strategy. What we were doing was we solved the private individual case and then sort of post hoc said, if I'm a social planner and I have a different valuation for the cost of illness than the individual does, how do I value their behavior? Do I think it was too much or do I think it was not enough? And what we found out was sort of when those public planners hold a cost of illness, which is indicative of a poor country with unskilled people, I don't think they should mitigate at all. Just get the epidemic over with and get back to work. I don't care you're easily replaced, which is terrible, but it's something that the WHO has talked about and observed. And on the converse, what we notice is that if you have parameters that are indicative of a richer country, we want you to mitigate as much, if not more, than what you chose to do. Great. Another depressing result where the rich get to stay nice and healthy and the poor get to be sick. Just just what I was hoping for. But you know what? Depressing or not, it still begs an interesting question. If you're a planner of some sort, how exactly do you incentivize behaviors around disease mitigation? Let's say you're a normal part-time employee at somewhere and you have no sick days available to you. The cost of you mitigating by taking days off from work is really high. Now, what if I give you a week paid sick leave over the course of a year? I've suddenly decreased that cost. I've incentivized mitigation by allowing it to be easier. Um, on the flip side, if I make the cost of illness less, in some sense, I've now disincentivized you to mitigating. That first part sounds good. I'm always in favor of people having more paid sick days. And the cost of being sick being lower actually doesn't sound terrible, but how exactly would one do that? If you're carrying 100% of the cost, that cost of illness could be high. If you get to go to the hospital for free and go see somebody and get some medicine, that's obviously low. And here, I had thought I had heard every single argument that there was for free health care. But providing readily available free health care to incentivize people to avoid mitigating during a disease epidemic is a new one to me. I cannot wait to use it, though, the next time I get into an argument about how the U.S. should fix its healthcare system. I mean, oh, actually, damn, damn, never mind. We're definitely one of those countries which Benjamin and his collaborators showed should be incentivizing mitigation, not incentivizing people avoiding mitigation. Oh, that's too bad. But you know what? At least I can use it to argue that there should be 
way more paid sick leave for people. And if you happen to live in the same country that I do, and you come down with a cold or get the flu this winter, and you have a low-cost way to mitigate, remember, you are not only doing what is right for you as an individual. You are also doing what is right for your country if you mitigate. Plus, it would mean that I'm way less likely to get sick from your icky, icky germs, which is really what I'm worried about. And that is all the time we have for this episode of Relatively Prime. I want to thank my guest, Benjamin Morn, for giving me so much time in the AMS and the MAA for the joint mathematics meetings where this conversation was recorded. Relatively Prime is brought to you by its amazing patrons on Patreon. If you want to help support the show like Thomas Bartles, Mark Bollinger, and Joss Lizon have, head on over to patreon.com slash relprime or go to relprime.com and click support. If you do, I may just be able to keep paying my rent, which would be so awesome. The music in this episode was from Supermilk, who you can find at SoundCloud or through the show notes for this episode on RailPrime.com. If you have any feedback for me or you just want to say hi, you can reach out, Samuel at AcmeScience.com. That really is my personal, everyday email address, and I don't get enough personal emails, so please just say hi. Let me know that you're listening to the show. I would love to hear from you. And if you want to help the show, but you know you can't afford to help me pay my rent through Patreon, first of all, I totally understand. I really can't afford to help support anyone right now either and second if you leave a review on apple podcasts that really can help bump the show up their rankings and get in front of more eyes more eyes means more ears and more ears means more people who are listening to the show which really is what we want because this is all about letting more people know about how awesome mathematics is and your review could be the one that causes one more person to love mathematics think about that think about how cool that would be and then go leave your review finally relatively prime is licensed with a creative Commons attribution share alike license so please feel free to remix my voice to say whatever you like as long as you mention that those words originally came from relatively prime and then you share it just like we have thank you so much for listening and wait here it is have a matherific week y'all